Second Samuel chapter 11 and verse 6. And David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah was coming to him, David demanded of him how Joab did, how the people did. Joab, of course, was the lead general. Uriah was one of his right-hand men. They were out at war against the Philistines, and they were on the battlefront, and sends a, a, a message to Joab to send Uriah home. And when Uriah comes, he sort of debriefs him how the war prospered. And no doubt, Uriah gave a report of what was happening on the battlefront. And David said to Uriah, go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of king's house. There followed him a mess of meat, possibly even elk meat, coming from the king's house. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and went not down to his house. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? And why then didst thou not go down into thine house? Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my Lord Jacob now he's referring to his general and the servants of my Lord, referring to his fellow comrades, his fellow soldiers, are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, tarry here today also, and tomorrow I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day, he extended his stay, because the plan was not going as King David had hoped for. And the morrow, and when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And at even he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. Even the second night, even under the intoxication of being made to drink wine by his king, David, David, of course, having ulterior motives, Uriah was such a man of principle that he still would not go into his home, which he had every right to do, and be with his wife because of the reasons that he stated. I want to speak tonight for a few moments in your hearing on this subject, the second stand, the second stand. Would you bow your heads and pray? Lord, we're thankful to be in your house tonight and thankful for your presence, thankful for the glory of the Lord that we feel. What a great God you are, Lord. What a loving Father you are. And I know, Lord, you love each and every one of us and you are speaking to us in a very direct, powerful way. Help us, God, to respond. Help us to heed the word of God. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much for standing. I'm so thankful for all of you that are here tonight. In the story that we uh, read this text from, David the king had had an affair with uh, a married uh, woman named Bathsheba. And I don't even know if we should call it an affair. We, we find a way to use all this... Uh, modern-day euphemistic language to make something sound like it's not really bad. But why don't we just call it what the Bible calls it? He had committed adultery. And uh, her husband, Bathsheba's husband, was Uriah. He was one of uh, the, the main generals. He was one of David's valiant men, which was a team of 36 elite soldiers. Uriah was... Um, one of those 36. And you can see from even the way that he behaved himself that Uriah was uh, a person of loyalty, a person of commitment. And uh, they, they were in a battle. Uh, Joab, of course, was the general. He was a, uh, an, an amazing warrior. Uh, just in so many ways, he uh, was a part of the success of, of, of David's army uh, from a military standpoint. But even Joab himself got 
a little caught up with himself and started to, to speak pretty casually with King David and even um, uh, disagree with him and vocalize that. And, and toward the end, Joab uh, was a thorn in David's flesh. But for many years, Joab uh, was no doubt a, a commander that David could have total confidence in. And so uh, when, when David requested that Joab would send Uriah uh, back home, Joab didn't ask any questions, and uh, Joab was out there on the front lines and fighting the Philistines. And David was home in Jerusalem. This is something that differed somewhat because many times David, being a warrior himself, would would go to battle with them. And uh, this uh, time, the Bible says, when kings went to battle, David stayed home. And, of course, uh, David staying home and having uh, all the luxury of the palace there and having all the comforts of being a king from a prosperous nation was just wandering around out there in his gardens and He looked down and he saw a beautiful Bathsheba down there taking a bath on the top of her home and he sent his servants for her and one thing led to another and they committed adultery. From that adultery, Bathsheba became pregnant as a result of this adulterous relationship. And so now David decides to call her husband home from the battle in an attempt to cover his sin. They didn't really have DNA testing back then. So he thought, you know, I'll just bring Uriah home. Uriah will go in and be with his wife for a couple days. And whenever they start having a child, everybody will see. Well, that's when Uriah came home and was with his wife. The problem in David's plan, and can I stop and say this, that in sin, there will always be problems to your plan. I said there will always be problems to your plan. Because sin is a problem. And one of the problems that David found, and this is an amazing situation, was that Uriah was so honorable. He was such a good man that he would not go into his house and enjoy the comforts of home while his fellow comrades and generals were in the field of battle. He even mentions that the Ark of the Covenant was in a tent. So how can he go into his home when these other important aspects of the battle that they were engaged in was not yet completed. So Uriah was an honorable, righteous man, and it messed up David's plan. David had a plan of covering his sin, and Uriah's righteousness messed up that plan. The first night he tells Uriah to go to his home, and he sends a bunch of meat with him, he gives him a, a whole bunch of food, and basically he tells him to go home and enjoy a good dinner. Uh, with his wife, and Uriah does not go home, sleeps at the gate of the king with the king's servants. And this is a public place, so now everyone knows that Uriah did not sleep at home. So the next day, the king tells Uriah, why don't you stay one more night? We're going to give this one more try. Of course, Uriah is not aware of what David is planning, but he's going to honor his king, and so he says, okay. And this time, King David is desperate, and he tries to get Uriah drunk. He throws a big party, and he has a lot of wine, and he thought, well, if Uriah was drunk, he would forsake his values. If we can just get him drunk, if we can just keep him one more night. I know Uriah is a man of honor. I know he's resisted temptation for one night, but he won't be able to do it the second time. Surely he will forsake his commitments. Surely he will forsake his position of honor and valor. So David has a big party, prepares his servants, tells them in advance, keep it flowing over there in Uriah's direction. But yet Uriah still does not go to his house. And still he sleeps at the gate of the palace with the servants. And David finally gives up, sends him back to the battlefield. Now he's changed his strategy and he gives him a note that is sealed with the king's seal and says, take this directly to Joab. Whenever Uriah takes that letter to Joab, it is his own death warrant. Because in that letter, David says to Joab, the next time you uh, assault the front of the enemy's lines, I want Uriah to lead the battle. I want Uriah to be at the front of the front lines. And so Uriah did what was asked of him. Joab did what was asked of him. And in the heat of the battle, 
Uriah is at the front, taking all of the arrows, and he dies in battle. I have read this story uh, many times, and sometimes things jump out at you in different ways. I have, of recent days, uh, been stirred in my spirit from the message in tongues, uh, interpretations that we have had in our church, that God is trying to prepare us for the second coming of the Lord. Like a loving parent, he has told us that it's not enough that you have served God in the past. It's going to matter what you're doing now. It's going to matter what is in your heart now, what you believe now, where your affections lie now. David tried one more night. He tried one more time to get Uriah to abandon his convictions. And if Uriah would have forsaken his beliefs on the second night, the commitment to principle on the first night would have been of no effect. It was important for Uriah to stand for righteousness, not just the first time, but to also stand for righteousness the second time, the second night. The commitment to principle on the second night is what turned the tide. It forced the issue. It caused David to change his strategy and to take drastic measures that ultimately resulted in the sin being uncovered and the succession of the kingdom being restored. You say, but Uriah lost his life for doing the right thing. That's correct. But Uriah will have all of eternity to be rewarded for the stand that he took uh, because he put the kingdom of God ahead of his own interest. You may not live long enough to see the value of your stand for righteousness in your home and in your family and on your job and in your community. You may not live long enough. And I've come to tell you in the next generation and the generation to come, it will show that those that stood for righteousness is what made the difference in the present generation. So as we examine this story, there are some principles that I believe we can extract. First of all, the principles of God that I believe are mirrored in the decisions that Uriah made. The world may not understand it or even appreciate it, but the church standing for principle in this world right now is what preserves it for the time being. The Bible says that we are a city that should be set on a hill and that we are the salt of the earth. And the salt preserves what it comes in contact with. And so the church is a preserving agent on this earth. And though nobody may put a ribbon on you, may nobody give you a trophy or an accolade that says thank you for standing for righteousness, at Harris. Thank you for standing for righteousness at Northup Grumman. Thank you for standing for righteousness in your school. Thank you for standing for righteousness on your job. Nobody may give you an award for that, but I've come to tell you that heaven takes notice of everything we do. And it is what stays the hand of judgment. It's what uncovers the wrong. It's what makes the sinner uncomfortable. But that is the job of the righteous. Our job is not to go along and get along. Our job is to stand for righteousness regardless of how it is, whether it's popular or not with our co-workers, uh, with our co-family members. It's not about pleasing man. It's about pleasing God. And sometimes you've got to be like a salmon and swim upstream and go against the current. But ladies and gentlemen, every time you and I stand for godly principles, uh, it is more than just an individual decision. It alters judgment. It alters the hand of God upon the face of the earth. The church was not designed to accommodate sin. It was not designed to keep silent in the face of sin. The church is established by the Lord to be a light to shine in the midst of darkness. And I'm glad to know that historically the church has attempted to do that. But ladies and gentlemen, it is not enough 
to stand for principle in the past, only to abandon it in the present. It is not sufficient to have a history of righteousness. Well, we stood for what was right the first night. Well, we did the best we could for a while. It's not enough to just have a track record of doing the right thing. God is looking for a people. God is looking for a church. God is wanting to know, are there righteous people that are still standing the second night? That are still standing the second generation? That's still standing, even though we've come through it, it's not over with yet. And it's going to be when God returns that he's looking for those that are taking the stand in. Not that have a pedigree of righteousness, but those that walk in righteousness in the present tense. Those that are still living right, thinking right, making the right decisions. Standing for truth in the face of peer pressure. Is there anybody that will do the right thing just one more time? Is there anybody that will live right just one more night? You have to stand for righteousness the second time. The second night. I wouldn't give you two cents for a church that used to have a standard of righteousness. Well, we used to do this. We used to do that. That's not going to help you now. It's not enough to have a pastor that used to preach holiness. Well, we used to preach against perversion, but now we have adopted a culture of tolerance and acceptance and even now, a friend of mine told me recently their pastor is, uh, made an announcement in the church bulletin that they are now marrying same-sex couples. And he said, we used to be a church of holiness. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not enough to say we used to be a church of holiness. We used to honor biblical principles, but now we have been enlightened. Now we have graduated. I'm going to tell you, all of that is a trick of the enemy. It is not the purpose of a pastor or a church to please the crowd for financial gain and to tickle the ears of the city's elite for position and prestige. That is not the role of a church. God is looking for some Uriahs. That can say, hey, it may be okay to go in, but I'm not going to do it because I'm going to stand for some principles that are higher than my own personal comfort. Oh, I call on this East Wind Pentecostal church. It's time to sound the trumpet of righteousness. It's time to sound the alarm and blow the bugle and wake up the camp. It may not be a pleasant sound, but we've got to stir ourselves. I call on young ministers and young people to sound the alarm, to preach the word, to stand for truth. It's not enough that our forefathers stood for righteousness. The world is looking to this generation. What are you going to do? What's the second generation going to do? What are we going to do the second time? God's looking for somebody that will go above and beyond the call of duty. Yes, Uriah had every right to go into the house and to be with his wife, but his principles, his convictions would not allow him to. Are there any speakers and keepers of righteousness left that will say we may have the liberty to do this, but we choose not to? Because we don't want to live by the appearance of evil. We don't want to give in to something that though it technically by the law may not be a sin, but it can lead to a sin. Mm. Is there anybody who is willing to do more than what's required? I say to you today, if we've got heaven to gain and hell to shun, there ought to be some Uriahs that rise up in the camp of Israel that says it may be okay to go there and to do that, but I choose not to.
I choose not to put myself in that environment. I choose not to watch that. I choose not to listen to that. I choose not to look like that because I've got bigger fish to fry. i got a heaven to gain, and that's more important than anything in this world. Is there any parents that will stand for what is right even in the face of fear? Even in the face of wanting to please your child? Is the call of righteousness still strong? Can we still stand for truth just one more generation? Just one more night? Can we be clear what is right and what is wrong just one more time? Just one more time. Can you stand by the principles that God have given us in the word? It is without a doubt the best thing that we can do for our families is to stand for righteousness. They need the righteous. And even people that will not tell you, they need you to stand for righteousness. They need you to stand true just one more night, just one more time. Don't give up now. We're too close to heaven. We're too close to the last lap to run out of gas. Put the pedal to the metal. Stay true to God's word. Just one more time. Just one more decision. Jesus prayed the second time in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then the third. And that's when he got the victory. For the Bible said he went away again the second time and prayed. Saying, oh my father... If this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. If Jesus, God manifest in the flesh, had to pray more than one time, is it possible that we're going to have to pray more than one time? And he left them, verse 44, and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Oh, he just had to keep going back to the well. Sometimes you just got to go back again the second time. Sometimes you got to go back again the third time. You say, well, I already did it one time. It didn't work, but you got to keep on keeping on. You got to go back the second time and the third time. In the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, he studies people who are so exceptional in their field that they are outside of the statistical data. They are outliers. He studies soccer players in Europe and violinists and Bill Gates and computer whizzes and studies hockey players in Canada. And he wanted to know what causes certain groups of people to excel, to be outside of the statistical data. He studies these planes that went down from other countries, many of them from South Korea. And in each instance, the co-pilot knew that they were neglecting something that was of utmost importance, like fuel running dangerously low. And in each case, the pilot was preoccupied with weather or ILS, instrument landing systems, or something else that was out. And the co-pilot was very subtle. He was too quiet in bringing up what the true issue was. And the result was a crash in each instance and many lives being lost. They learned that in the culture that these pilots were from, they were not comfortable with forcing the issue, with speaking up, with insisting that the traffic controllers in New York land them or give them an alternative airport because they were not going to make it. They had to retrain these co-pilots from other countries that you have to speak up. You can't stay silent and die and go down with a plane full of people. You may be the co-pilot, but if you're running out of fuel, you got to speak up and say something. Oh, I say to this generation, it's not enough to stay quiet and allow the ship of Zion to go down. Somebody's got to stand up and say, not for me. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Lives depend on it. What are these principles that the righteous stand by? Let's, let's examine what Uriah said. He said the ark. I can't go into my home because the ark is not in its resting place. It's in a temporary place. The ark represented the place of God. He was saying, and this was a principle, the things of God cannot be in a lesser position than the things of man. That's the principle he was saying. 
I can't go into my home while the ark is still in the field. Because the things of God cannot be in a lesser position than the things of man. The house of God cannot be in an inferior position to the house of man. There was a time, ladies and gentlemen, when man put such value on the house of God. You go into these little towns of historical America and the church was the center of the city. It was the biggest building in the city. There was pride that went with that. There was a blessing that comes with that. When the house of God is respected, there's a blessing that goes with that. I don't know about you, but I was brought up in church. I've been in church since I was two weeks old. And there was a time when kids were taught to respect the house of God. I got a whipping when I got home if I took my shoes off in church. Now kids come to church and parents have got a smorgasbord of sweets and M&M's and everything else out there and you'll treat the house of God like it's a movie theater. I don't understand it. I'm thankful that God has blessed us and helped us to stay true to this principle and we have a beautiful place that we worship in. But I've gone to some places where the church was falling apart. Carpet smelled like urine and the roaches were doing push-ups in the corner. And everybody else was living in a mansion. And the house of God looked like a glorified outhouse. That doesn't bring glory to God. But you get a bunch of people together, which is one reason I think East Wind is blessed. Because what you see today is because of people that have sacrificed. And while I'm at it, I'm going to be a little pastoral. I don't apologize for saying, don't bring all your junk and garbage in here. Don't bring your chewing gum in here and bring all your mess in here. If you want to drink a glass of water or a bottle of water, you can bring that in here. But I'm not interested in you bringing your big gulp in here and bringing all the junk for your kids and saying, well, I've got an infant. Well, that's what we got a nursery for. We got to keep the house of God in a pristine place because it's God's house. It represents the things of God. Mm. This is what Uriah, this was a principle. He said, I, I, I can't sleep in my nice house while the ark's in a tent. I can't rest while the place of God is in a restrictive position, but the place of man is in an expansive position. Show me a place where people put the house of God first and I'll show you a place where the people of God prosper. We stand on the shoulders of a generation that has put the house of God first. But it's not enough for just our forefathers to stand for the house of God being revered and respected. This generation has to stand the second time The second generation must stand for putting God's house above their own house. They're saying it ought to be the nicest building in all of Palm Bay. Still bothers me. I know Brother Richie says it's like having built-in, you know, speed bumps. But it still bothers me driving in this parking lot with dips and gaps. And I still don't like it because this place represents the place of God. And I think the outside ought to be as beautiful as the inside. So we're going to get, we're going to get that parking lot fixed. The devil is a hair lip. We're going to do it one way or another. They got to come in and take all of it out. They got to redo all the bedrock and everything, but I don't care what it takes. We're going to do it because it's going to look nice around here. Right now, once you get inside, it looks great. I told the, the kids as we were pulling up tonight, I said, I love the way that new foyer's got all them lights. It just looks like a big jewel just sitting up there on the side of Emerson and Americana when you pull up. I want to drive by it and say, that's my church. That's where I go to church. That's where the name of Jesus is represented. I sleep better at night if I know the church is taken care of. Oh, I hope you get a revelation. There's nothing like saying, I'm going to honor the place of God. David couldn't bear to see the ark in a lesser place than what he lived in. David said, see thou, 
I dwell in a house of cedar. The ark of God dwelleth within curtains. Hmm. Oh, my friend. I know David made some mistakes, and we're talking about one of them tonight, probably his biggest mistake. But David had a heart for the things of God. I said David had a heart for the things of God. But it wasn't just the Ark of the Covenant. It was also Israel and Judah. Uriah said, I can't go in. I can't go to my home because my comrades, my general, Israel and Judah, are out in the field. There was a principle of not only putting the place of God first, which was the Ark, also a principle of putting the people of God first. Uriah has this principle that the people of God cannot be intense and he enjoy the comforts of home. In other words, I must put others ahead of myself. Now there's a novel concept. Say, oh, but pastor, there's no way we're leaving this World War II generation, the greatest generation. Now we've got this narcissistic generation and everything's about egocentric and self-centeredness. I refuse all of that. I have been around young preachers and young people that are so committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They respect their elders. They love the tradition, the forefather. They know we stand on the shoulders of giants. They're committed to honoring them. But they have got a faith and a boldness. I feel that this generation is rising up and saying it's not enough that just the past generation stood for righteousness. But this generation is going to stand for righteousness. My father right now is teaching our boys, and he said, uh, I asked Gregor the other day, I said, what did he teach? And he said he really was teaching about Genesis, but he really gave us a good point. He said one of the reasons that Eve fell into temptation was she told whenever Satan tempted her, she said, this is what God had said. He said part of the problem was he, she was saying that this is what God said has to happen. She didn't say, this is what I have to do. She had never taken ownership of the laws of God. Oh, this is what the church teaches. And he taught these young men that it's not enough to just say, this is what God has said. This is what the Bible has said. You've got to get it in your gizzard. This is what I believe. This is who I am. Because when you say that, it opens up a door to the enemy. And he knows that he can get a foothold because he tells the way that you frame it that it's not your personal belief. It's what everybody else believes. He said it's only going to work if you decide for yourself, this is who I am. This is what I believe. This is how I choose to live. Oh, I say to this generation, it's time to rise up and the second time stand for righteousness. Your greatest danger, ladies and gentlemen, is not being with God's people in God's house. I'm going to stand right now and refute everything you've heard on the news and everything that you've heard that's been going on for the past 10 months in this country. You are not in danger being in God's house with God's people. I feel a boldness of the Holy Ghost. Your greatest danger is not in coming to church and being in an atmosphere of praise with God's people. Your greatest danger is the lack of God's people. I'll shout if I got to do it all by myself. I'm thankful for my brothers. I get strength from my brothers. I get strength from my sisters. Don't let anybody take that from you. When Jacob heard that there was food in Egypt, he sent his sons, not once but twice. Acts chapter 7 and verse 11. Now there came a darth or a famine over all the land of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction. And our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. This is being recounted now. The second time, 
This is being recounted by a young preacher named Stephen who was fixing to die for his beliefs. But he was going to stand the second time. And he started giving them a history of how God had been working with the nation of Israel. He said, Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt. He sent our fathers out. And in verse 13 of Acts 7, he said, and at the second time. He didn't just send them one time. He sent them the second time. And at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren. And Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. And the Bible goes on to say 75 of them. is all that was in that family came out of the wilderness into Egypt. 400 years later when they left, they were a nation of 3 to 4 million Jews. They came in just 75 people. If they would have only gone one time, they would have never known that's our brother Joseph. Joseph has been put in a position to give us sustenance. Oh, sometimes you got to go back to the well the second time. Sometimes you got to go back to the altar one more time and you'll get a revelation that you know what? The Lord is my strength and the people of God have been put in a position to give me protection and I'm going to get sustenance from my brother and I don't get that revelation the first time. I got to go the second time. Peter was just taking a nap at his friend's house when the Lord started working on him. Acts chapter 10 and verse 15, and the voice spake unto him again the second time. But God hath cleansed that call not thou common. If it had only happened one time, he may have never got the revelation. Peter, this is for more than just the Jews. But God hath cleansed that call not thou common. This is the gospel that's for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Ladies and gentlemen, value that is put on being with God's people is a part of the heart of God. I learned a long time ago that God loves and cares about his people. And if I care about his people, I'm on the same page as God is. I said God loves his people. So you would do well to love his people. Oh, the enemy would like to show you everything that's wrong with everybody sitting around you. You've got to reject all of that and say, no, one more time, I'm coming to the house of God. I can't believe the number of people that quit coming to the house of God because they get crossed up with somebody sitting five seats over from them. If that person, you're crossed up with them, you need to go back to church the second time and make things right. Don't let anybody stop you from being in the house of God with the people of God. Come on, you got to fight for your brother. You got to fight for your sister. You got to say, hey, we're all on the same team. We're all in this together. We're going to get to the other side, but we've all got to stay on the boat. King Balak wanted Balaam to curse the people of God. Balaam could not do it. Every time he'd open his mouth to curse them, he wanted to. He was being paid good money to curse the people of God. But every time he'd open his mouth, he'd work on something really good, kind of a curse, some sort of a hex he could put on him. He'd get it all worked up in his mind. And then he'd open his mouth, his hands outstretched over that army as they stood up on that mountain. He's ready now to curse them. All of Balak's men are standing around. Balaam's, the great prophet of Israel, is going to curse his own people. And he'd open his mouth, bless the people of God. Give them great victory. <laughs> Woo! Come on, just one more time. You gotta say, hey, I'm thankful I got a brother or a sister that's gonna stand for righteousness. And you know what? I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna say, God be with you. God keep you. From generation to generation, I ask that God would honor you. Oh, we think the kingdom of God is just a bunch of people that attend the same church. No, my friend, the kingdom of God is what God came to this earth for. David tried to buy off Uriah the first night with meat and the second night with drink. But the Bible says the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. 
but righteousness. Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Oh, hallelujah. You want to tell you what the bottom line is? Uriah had a revelation of what the kingdom of God is. We do well to get a revelation of what the kingdom of God is. It's not meat and drink. It's righteousness and peace and joy. And it all came from God. He gave us the joy. He gave us the peace. He's the righteous example. The kingdom of God is built when the people of God do the right thing just one more time. When the righteous take a stand just one more time. The people of God do the right thing. Just one more night. The kingdom is preserved. Uriah lost his life, but the kingdom was preserved for the next generation. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is coming back the second time. I said he's coming back the second time. He came one time. And we're celebrating that now, but he's trying to point us to the second time. He honors the fact that we remember his birth, but he keeps reminding us it didn't stop at Bethlehem. There's coming a day, that great getting up morning. Come on, saints of God. We got to stand for righteousness one more night. One more day, one more generation, one more time. This is who I am. I am a child of God, and I choose to stand and to do that. That is right. One more time. Stand to your feet. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him, Shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation? You're looking for the Lord to come one more time. I wonder if you'd step out from where you're standing and come down to this altar. And I pray that as you come down to this altar, you would let your footsteps communicate. I'm looking for his soon appearing. I'm not so caught up in this world. And I'm comfortable here. I think it could be that God's making us uncomfortable so we'll get hungry for heaven. But there's something rising up in the church. Come on, one more night. One more week. One more generation. One more time. I'm going to go into the house of God. Oh, I'm going to worship God one more time. I wonder if God's people could make a commitment right now. I don't care what comes against me. I don't care what winds of adversity may blow. As for me and my family, we're going to value the principles of God, the place of God, and the people of God. I say we're going to value the principles of God, the place of God, and the people of God one more time. That's your prayer. Would you lift your hands now all over the building? Come on, lift up your voice. This is the day that the Lord hath made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Keep it so. Come, Lord Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Jesus come on I made my decision yes Lord in the name of Jesus
this in the Holy Ghost. I'd like for everybody that's between the ages of 12 and 20 to come up on this platform. You're between the ages of 12 and 20. I want you to come up here and stand behind me on this platform. People are under such an attack. It would blow your mind what these young people are going through. They hear the voices of the world every day. Tell them, come on. Just go into your house. It's your right. Just go in. Lay down. Take it easy. Hang your harps up on the willow trees. Be at ease inside. I wonder if this great church would stretch your hands forth right now. Would you pray for this second generation right here? Would you pray that God would give them an anointing and a boldness and an authority in the name of Jesus Christ? Come on, we're going to make it our own conviction. It's not just what the church teaches, it's what I believe. It's who I am. Come on, I want you to really pray. In the name of Jesus Christ. Come on, pray like your life depended on it because it does. In the name of Jesus. 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 Come on, one more generation. Jesus is coming. Just one more time.
thank you for the courage to stand for righteousness. I thank you for this generation, oh Lord. I pray that you would give them courage and boldness in the name of Jesus. Stand for righteousness in the face of adversity. And make their claim put their stake in the ground. Draw a line and say, this is who I am. your arms of love around us, Lord. Steer us and guide us. Keep us, oh God, in your perfect will. In the name of Jesus. Everybody said amen. amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Love you guys in the name of Jesus.